Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a lot of people when they're on the radio and when they're talking in podcasts, they refer to the listener. And I've been trying to find a word that we can use instead of listener. So I've gone through the synonyms. Do we refer to them, guys? I've as got one. Audience. It sounds, you're sounding a little bit hopeful, Phil. What I'm looking for is that <laughs> when I go through the synonyms, we've got words like onlookers or admirers or devotees. <laughs> Innocent bystanders. Or congregation. How do we refer to them? What word do we like? I know. Witnesses. <laughs> Witnesses. That's <laughs> Witnesses to glory. <laughs> the best word I found is invigilator. <laughs> We're in the invigilator. <laughs> so this is this is to all the invigilators who are listening to this podcast. <laughs> Look it up. We just like to welcome the invigilators to this week's episode of Is This Shirt Slimming? Is this shirt slimming? Presented by Christopher Sulos, Robert Barnhill, Philip Muscatello. The highs, the lows, the triumphs, the invigilators, the laughter, the tears. Is this shirt slimming? I guess it must be a podcast. Whoops. Okay, well, look, we're going to pretend now that we're actually doing a podcast about music. Did you realise that in 1964, there were 190 million Americans and 72 million of them watched The Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Wow. What were the others doing? What I wanted to do is move through to 1967. And in 1967, the reptiles of the press in cheap black suits and narrow ties rushed out of their newsrooms with 16mm movie cameras and converged on places like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. They'd heard that beautiful young girls, drunk or stoned or both, were walking around without their clothes on. Middle-aged American men were glued to their TV sets every night. By 1967, the revolution had already been televised. The big music artists that you remember from that time were selling 10 million-plus copies on vinyl of their songs. Those are video game numbers these days, boys. And in 1967, Hair debuted off-Broadway. The Graduate, a story of the emptiness of capitalism and cowardice of conformity, was a hit. And Bonnie and Clyde made ignorant, homicidal maniacs glamorous. The revolution had arrived, and so had the cow cells. Over to you, boys. Wow, that was so professional. The rain, the park, and other things. One of my absolute favourite pieces of music, Phil. Thanks for that. Was the, I think the guy who co-wrote that was the fellow who put the Woodstock movie together. Really? Yep. Who was that? I think it was I think it was Artie Cornfield. He wasn't in the Cow Cells. No. And a beautiful story about that song because I that that thing you know that rising uh, thing they sing in the background. The reason we can hear multiple voices because the mother was really nervous and she was in the band. And I think one of the young kids, the youngest one, was standing behind her telling her what to sing mm-hmm. during the take. God, how, how do you know that? It's one of my favourite songs. It's a song which the title of the song is never mentioned in the lyrics. Well. 
<laughs> there's a documentary on Netflix uh, about the the cow sills as well, and it's one of those typical stories about. Um, it's called Family Band, the cow sill story. Fantastic. Yeah. So when they had that hit in 1967, they were just really trying to w- ride the wave of the the whole hippie thing. They were. What I've noticed about this band and reading about them, I've been actually researching them all day and watching videos of them being interviewed. Fantastic. And um, gosh. Um, well, I'm comfortable. I'm happy to listen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's not a lot to say about them, except oh. that um, oh. <laughs> they were so... I spent the whole day... Uh, can I say that I've, I've ended the day disliking the cow sills? What? May I be a bit oh. controversial here? Controversy. Um, what can I say? Come on, they, blew them, they, they bought golf courses. I think my dislike is watching them in interviews and seeing their sheer egotism when they're on TV talking about themselves and how wonderful they are. And really, what they did... Okay, that song is a fantastic song, The Rain, The Girl. But then everything else they did was so derivative. You know, they were just taking the whole of the 60s vibe and turning it around into money-making songs. And you know, of course, that they were... The Partridge family were based on them. They were originally going to be the Partridge family. Yeah. And uh, until they decided they needed actors, and so they got rid of them. But um, the band was actually based on them, this family that um, all played and and sang together. They also were famous in their time in the 60s because they were Milk America. They were the spokes band for the milk industry in the United States. What's so funny about that? That's beautiful. I mean, it, it, we, we sort of we, we laugh about J- Justin Bieber these days, and we laugh about um, the way music's made these days. But it was still being done in the '60s as well. And yeah, have you seen yeah, Have you seen great. the video clip of their version of Hair? No, no, I've only no. This is one of the reasons why I dislike them so much. Oh, it's. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to look at. I'm it. I'm just going to look at Chris looking at it. This makes interesting viewing, listeners. <laughs> oh, the hair. Okay. I've never seen this video. Get out of here. I love. I actually prefer their version to the Broadway show version. I hated the Broadway version. The other thing that I dislike them about, um, the cow sills. Let me just read, read you this review of it. Family Band is also a milestone marker, showing us the cracked foundation that supported a squeaky-clean family image and a a veneer-thin ideal so often polished in the advertising in the 50s and 60s. For a while, the council served as the spokespersons for the American Dairy Association, always at the ready with big white glasses of wholesome milk and big white teeth to go along with them. If any family suffered the schizophrenia of a happy-go-lucky public persona papering over a dysfunctional, unhappy home, it was the Cowsills. The Cowsills catapulted to fame when Minnie-Mum, Barbara Cowsill, and her young daughter, Susan, were put into the already working band of brothers, Bill, Bob, Barry, Paul and John, by the band's producers and handlers. <laughs> what was a workmanlike group of talented young singer-musicians toiling away on the local circuit in Rhode Island erupted erupted, exploded into financial gold when it was transformed and marketed as an effusive family band. But anyway, they go on about the father and how the, um, the father was this ma- the manager and an unpredictable alcoholic, philanderer and violent tyrant, like um, Papa Jackson, wow. I guess, like of the Jacksons. Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. Sounds, sounds like Rob Arnhill. Well qualified, Chris. On one of their TV interviews with Joan Rivers... <laughs> can we talk? Can we talk, Joan Rivers? And um, I love Joan. 
and they're, they're standing up for their father, saying what a great guy he is. I mean, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Uh, who was that woman that used to have her own show? Was it Dor- not Doris Day? Yeah, Doris Day had her own show, didn't she? Yeah. Afternoon TV show. Mm-hmm. They were on Doris Day, and I remember them being on the show, and uh, they, they said, uh, Dad's in charge of production and Mum's in charge of reproduction. I just remember. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a great joke. And- it is. The older brother, the lead singer, the, 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 the twin with a better voice, which is ridiculous because they both had the same voices, he uh, ended up getting into production, music production, and uh, he, he did eventually die of, of uh, complications with alcohol and drugs. You know, he tried to clean himself up. So, you know, but the rest of them kind of kept themselves together and uh, they reformed. Was one of them, one of them uh, went on to sing with the Beach Boys as well. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. considered to replace Brian. But he, I think he played keyboards for, the, for one of the touring versions of the Beach Boys if he wasn't... Because they, they, you have to learn the stuff before you can be the replacement. Who so did they pick to yeah. replace Brian? Uh, hang on, I've got it here. Come on, come on. Oh, um... Come on, boys. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it's... Um, Apart from joining the Beach Boys to replace oh, Brian Wilson, um, still being in the band today. He was the he was the guy who sang Ringo, and he was the lead actor in the um, Bonanza, no, Ponderosa, Long Green. No. <laughs> <laughs> and and he wasn't Ellie Mae Clampett either. He uh, his name is Bruce Johnston. Is that his real name? Yeah, his real name. He joined the touring version of the Beach Boys, and he wrote a little tune that Barry Manilow made famous called "I Write the Songs." You know Barry's gay, right? Apparently. <laughs> no, he's actually finally, finally come out. He's finally, can you believe? <laughs> this be he's been living with his manager for 40 years, but it he's is. finally come out. Yeah, he's a confirmed bachelor. Anyway, look, um, so, seeing we're in the, uh, the 60s pop mode, Rob, what's, what's, can you tell us one of your favourite uh, pop songs from the 60s? Oh, you know my favourite pop song from the 60s, Phil? It's the real thing by Johnny Young. It's always with the Austra- you always bring it back to the Australian music, don't you? I can't, I can't help that. During the sixties, I loved Australian music, and um, oh, the real thing was just a great record, a turning point in my life. Wait, wait, hang on, when you say Johnny Young, he wrote the song, but um, it was performed by Russell Morris and produced by Ian Meldrum. Uh, by Molly, yeah, that's right. Molly! The single most expensive piece of recording ever done in Australia up to that point. More was spent on that single than it was ever spent on any Australian hit album. And, and, and the, of course, when it, uh, when it was taken over to the US for release, they said, oh, no, it sounds too dated <laughs> because they'd moved on from the psychedelic music already <laughs> and gone back to roots music. <laughs> who was the, hang on, who was the piano player on um, The Real Thing? Oh. Ah. Oh. He had his own band. The Bootleg Family was his band. Brian Cad. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Which which all leads back to Glenn Shorrock, doesn't it, boys? <laughs> 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 Everything in Australian rock somehow involves somewhere the Kevin Bacon of Australian music. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Bacon of Australian... <laughs> the Zelig of Australian music. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I love Glenn. Man, what was that really great band they had uh, with Brian Cade? 
Do Arkansas Grass, yeah, Axiom, Arkansas Grass. Oh. Little Ray of Sunshine. I, I met Brian Cadd at a songwriter's workshop. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And he said, any questions? And I said, the guitar break in Little Ray of Sunshine. Who came up with that? Yeah, yeah, they did it. Terry Britton. Well, it didn't matter who played it. It was the producer's idea. It wasn't in the song when they put the song together. The producer did it. And I said, but it's fantastic. He says, yeah, we actually spent a whole day getting it right. Oh, it's a great song. Great. It's a fantastic song. It's, uh, it must I, have been, um, it must have been f- you, after you, Rob. Thank you, Phil. I played Don't You Know It's Magic, by, written by Brian Cadd and performed at the Tokyo Song Competition. Farnsey, John Farnham went over with Brian and they won. It must have been 1971 or 72. Uh, I was just thinking about this because it must have been so strange being a musician in Australia in the 60s because it was such a backwater. You know, these days, you know, someone like a flume, Flume can be working out of um, their garage in Redfern or wherever and become a worldwide smash hit. But in those days, the, the, the barriers to entry to getting on the Billboard Top 100 were so enormous that so many Australian bands, and, and so they were kind of forced to work here and forced to take the currents of the music that was coming from overseas and um, develop, developing our own way. And really, it worked all for the best because we ended up with some fantastic music. Billy Fields. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Hang on, I, I won't have a, 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 a word said against Billy Field because he actually encouraged What's a lot of music and he... <laughs> is, he, he was... I do like Billy. Did your parents scar you for life in the worst possible way? Are you missing out on all the pleasure possible? Then call the Dapto Foreskin Restoration Clinic and ask about our revolutionary foreskin restoration techniques. It's time to act. Become intact. Our system of weights and the patented tugging techniques will leave you the way God intended. Restoring valuable erogenous tissue. The Dapto Foreskin Restoration Clinic, putting the dangle in your wangle. Uh, Chris, you, I, I heard you interrupting my little train of thought that I was going about before, but you were saying about, it wasn't true, what I was saying about um, the way Australian music was in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. The, we were a backwater, but we had developed our own particular sound. Mm. And it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was not only parallel and influenced by overseas, but there was a lot that was going on within Australia, which is why guys like Thorpey, uh, the, the Beatles actually wanted to meet Thorpey when they came out, because he came from this place where there shouldn't have been that sort of dynamic influence. Uh, who, were, who else was there? Johnny hang on, hang on. sorry. Can we just go, go back just a sec? Go on. The Beatles yeah, wanted yeah. to meet Thorpey. Yeah, he went up and met them at the hotel at uh, King's Cross. And why did they want to meet him? They liked his voice. They liked, they liked him. Anything, how did they hear Thorpey in England in those days? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If anyone's listening I to don't. this and knows any, the answers to this, this would be great for you to write that's in a, to our website. It's a, a great question, Phil. How did the Beatles hear of Thorpey? I don't know. I just know the end of it where Thorpey tells the story of how he, they wanted to meet him when they came out. So they'd heard of something... Pretty much, he would have been, he's like the Jimmy Barnes of his day, isn't he? You know, this is unstoppable, you know, steam train of a voice. And personality as well. 
Oh, yeah, and person and can play. You know, he was a good musician. Oh. Did I miss anything about Glenn Shorrock? Rob, while we were away, we were talking about um, the Beatles wanting to meet Thorpey when they came to Australia. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Had had they read his books? No. <laughs> Thorpey had, hadn't had his career yet. <laughs> oh, come on. He had several careers. Australian pop of these 60s, my first gig that I ever saw, my first time I ever saw a rock and roll band was the Masters Apprentices at live at the Raindrop Fountain at Roselands when I was 10 years oh. old. <laughs> Fantastic. That would have been great. Rob, you'd remember the Raindrop Fountain. <laughs> I do. I remember the Raindrop Fountain. We used to drive out to see it from wherever we were. 70 degrees. It had, it had, had air conditioning. It was 70 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's right. It was perfect. And the raindrop fountain. And I saw um, the Master's Apprentices doing Turn Up Your Radio and seeing, I think that must have been one of the formative experiences for getting into music in my life, seeing something like that yeah. at such an age because, you know, they were a, they were a full-on rock band. In such a venue. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, other, no other venue that a 10-year-old could get into those in those days. My mother saw Little Stevie Wonder there. At the Raindrop Fountain? What? At the Raindrop Fountain. Little Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie Wonder. Oh, my God. That was at Roselands. How about that? Wow. I remember when it opened, she came home with a, a bunch of plastic red roses. Isn't that beautiful? They gave every mum that went That's in. beautiful. Not horrible live ones that would just melt away, but plastic ones you could keep forever. And you've you've got it. You've still got. Well, it. I'm hoping she's going to pass them on. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's so cool. <laughs> I hope you're listening, Mum. Right, sixties, pop records. I'll keep it to the Aussie. What about going to see my baby tonight? By the is that is that six? That's seventies. The lady does. That's seventies. And that 70s. was a New Zealand band, Chris. Oh, they can't. They did. They 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 they. We always take them. No, they were new. Kevin's still anyway. touring. He never went back home. He's been touring. What's he running from? We should send Aussie bands to New Zealand. Hold on. I've thought of a 60s band that I'm sure Chris will know all about. You ready? Hmm? The Executives. I played with the Executives. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic. Oh, I can't remember. I was. I played in the band. I can't remember one song. Um, I've even forgotten I was in the band. <laughs> Everyone's trying to get more more and more obscure. What about some of the bigger bands? Yeah, the proper, the proper bands, like Barry Crocker, real bands. What was his hit single? Did he have a hit single? Yeah, he did. I'm going to look it up because it's memorable. Is it? No, that's why I'm looking at it. <laughs> Who am I looking for again? Oh, Barry Crocker. Barry Crocker. <laughs> and Ernie Sigley. I don't think our invigilators in San Jose, Minneapolis and New York are going to be interested in Barry Crocker's record in 1960-something. Hold on, there's lots of Barry Crocker records. <laughs> I can't turn it off. It's impregnable to the pause button. Beyond the pause button. That's the sort of show we need, one that's impregnable, impregnable to the pause button. Okay, here's one of my favourite songs from the Aussie songs from the 60s. I reckon it's their best song. This is the Easy Beats, um, I'll Make You Happy. Better than Friday on My Mind, better than Sorry, better than Good Times. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not easy to sing, but then I don't find any, any song easy to sing. 
Yeah, you've never made songs sound easy, Rob. <laughs> I didn't say easy to hear, Chris. I said easy to sing. You always made us pay to listen. Now, Doug Parkinson told me, because I was in his band for a while, <laughs> this is, I just find it funny to even hear myself say it, um, that Dear Prudence was a, was, um, it was sent over as a demo John Lennon had done, because they, used to, they used to, still used to do songs that they wouldn't record themselves, that other people would record, and that one was sent to him to do, and he did it, and they, they decided they would do it too, which is why it's on both, it was a hit for Doug Parkinson and the Beatles. What do you mean, Lennon wrote it? Yeah, Lennon had put the song together, and they sent it over to Doug Parkinson. Well, Doug picked it, yeah, but they hadn't recorded their version of it yet. So Doug had the hit. Before. Yeah, <clears throat> that's why it came out at the same time, because he had a demo of it. Well, that's cool. So he got it through the publisher. Mm, mm. That's strange how the music industry works. That's flawless. <laughs> <laughs> is, 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 is this shirt slimming? Now, Chris, a few episodes ago, you were mentioning to me about where do you go to, my lovely? Yeah, oh, Peter Sarsted. One, oh, I've been listening to this song. There's a verse in this song they cut out for the radio where he talks about her body. You remember at the time there was all this. Who who was he singing about? That there was a theory that it was Sophia Loren or Marianne Faithful. Marianne Faithful. There were all these theories about who who it was. Yeah, but um, in fact, it was his um, girlfriend. Marie Claire was meant to be a generic European girl, but. If she was based on anybody, it was my girlfriend, Anita. I had been introduced by a fellow busker when Anita was studying in Paris in the summer of 66, and it was love at first sight. She watched as I composed because I was in her room most of the time. So she knows things about me that others don't. We married in 69 and divorced in 1974. And for the rest of her life, oh. she's been a dentist. <laughs> wow. And so in the song where he wants to look inside her head, in fact, she spent her life looking inside other people's heads. The irony is so beautiful. <laughs> That's how we should end the show. I was just going to um, mention as well, we're going to, I'm trying to get um, Neil Rankin on as our guest next week on the program. I haven't met Neil. We'd like him. But he's the drummer yeah. in the B-Tell, so we can talk about Ringo's oh, drumming okay. for hours about that. And he's also been... Is he left-handed <laughs> or right-handed? <laughs> and the new Paul. And the new Paul. Yeah, and we can Paul also be- talk about um, his time in the Australian Doors show. So that's been another episode Hold of this show. Th- but this has been another... Uh, Come on now, uh, uh, don't interrupt me. Uh, oh, sorry, you slipped into professional mode. Oh, look, I can't, get it, I can't get it up again, guys. I was just... I was ready to go there. Uh, <laughs> you can do it, Dean. You can do it. You can do it. Come on, Dean, you can do it. Okay, so the the end of this program, we want to mention the name of the website, which is slimmingly.strikingly.com, and um, you can get our playlists on Spotify, and you can uh, subscribe with us on iTunes, and you can also give us a five-star rating to help us uh, get more listeners. Do you want to do it again? No, no, because this is too straight. It's sounding too straight. I don't want it to be straight. I want it to be more... It's pretty, it's pretty straight, though. This is not okay. the way to end the program. How would Johnny Depp do it? Johnny Depp. I want us to think about how we how we don't end the program, and this is the way we don't end the program. Thank you for listening. Oh, wow, that's that beautiful, Phil. That deep, wasn't it? I feel deflated. There's a, a lot to think about. There. You know, I'm naked from the waist down as well. I've read that memo. So am I. 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 